masters of your wisdom have established three hierarchies of angels, have arrayed them in marvelous order above the fiery heavens, and have marshaled the regions of the universe with such artful skill. You are proclaimed the true thought of light and wisdom, and the primal origin raised high beyond all things. Pour forth a ray of your brightness into the darkened places of my mind. Disperse from my soul the twofold darkness into which I was born, sin and ignorance. You make eloquent the tongues of infants. Refine my speech and pour forth upon my lips the goodness of your blessing. Grant to me keenness of mind, capacity to remember, skill in learning, subtlety to interpret, and eloquence in speech. May you guide the beginning of my work, direct its progress, and bring it to completion. You who are true God and true man, who live Welcome to Old Books with Grace. I'm Dr. Grace Hammond, medievalist, writer, wife, mother, and wildly enthusiastic about autumnal seasonal gourds. I just harvested our 40-pound pumpkin named Queen Elizabeth I from the garden to sit on her new throne on our front porch. We've arrived at fit two of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. We left off fit one in Arthur's court. And remember, fit is what the poet calls the sections of his poems. The poet has forebodingly warned Gawain not to lose his nerve as the deadly game's conclusion draws closer and closer. And I was struck as I read and wrote this week with the beginning of this section Simon Armitage begins his translation of Fit 2 with, This happening was a gift. A gift that Arthur has received, that he's asked for. Armitage's gift translates the medieval word Hansela. A Hansela is a New Year's gift given as token of good fortune on the New Year. To begin a section with the gifted nature of this game as a nod to Arthur's desire fascinates me. I don't know if Gawain would see it as a gift. The gift uh, in the eyes of Arthur, in the eyes of Gawain, is transformed and it's refitted into a moment to show prowess from an unearned token of fortune to part of an economy of skill and honor. And again, in one minor, easily overlooked moment, this using the word gift, the poet cannily reveals something of human nature. We take our gifts, we take what is given to us, and transform them into a statement on our abilities, our worth, and skill. Next, our poet describes the seamless passing of the year as the gift game approaches. After lavish Christmas comes the lean days of Lent, when the flesh is tested with fish and simple food. Then the world's weather wages war on winter, cold shrinks earthwards and the clouds climb. 
Sun-warmed, shimmering rain comes showering onto meadows and fields where flowers unfurl. Woods and grounds wear a wardrobe of green. Birds burble with life and build busily as summer spreads, settling on slopes as it should. Then autumn arrives to harden the harvest, and with it comes a warning to ripen before winter. The drying airs arrive, driving up dust from the face of the earth to the heights of heaven. And wild sky wrestles the sun with its winds, and the leaves of the lime lie littered on the ground, and grass that was green turns withered and gray. Then all which had risen over ripens and rots, and yesterday on yesterday the year dies away, and winter returns, as is the way of the world through time. At Michaelmas the moon stands like that season's sign, a warning to Gawain to rouse himself and ride. That's Simon Armitage's translation of the Middle English, and it's such a beautiful evocative passage and worth especially noting, besides its wild beauty, really, it has such a natural beauty to the language. Um, But it's worth noting because one of the oldest ways of reading this poem and understanding it is with an emphasis on nature versus humankind or pagan ways versus Christian new ways. Um, The Green Knight is emblem of all this versus Gawain, ambassador of mankind, now distanced from nature. This is a question we haven't really thought about yet, but which has likely occurred to many of you. What are we supposed to make of the Green Knight's greenness? Is he representative of something? Is he, for instance, a pagan manifestation of nature worship in old ways? Is Gawain the consummate knight, symbol for Christian civilization, constantly trying to control the looming power and darkness of what came before? Does the Green Knight stand for anything? I don't believe that the medieval world thought of dichotomies in that way. This is very dualistic thinking, nature versus man. And I say man deliberately. This dualistic thinking is more reflective of an 18th, 19th, even 20th century understanding of the world. The destructive, powerful, so-called white man's burden that colonial mindset of conquering and improving nature, women, other races, and the pagan past and present. Certainly the Green Knight is a force beyond the ordinary and a challenge to Arthur's court and way of thinking about the world. But this challenge is more complex than simple dualisms. And I'll talk more about that as we continue in the poem, but In the passage I just read, both the humanity-focused Christian liturgical holidays of Christmas, Lent, Michaelmas, and All Saints Day blend seamlessly with this amazing graphic language about the natural world. Christianity and nature aren't opposed. It's the unnatural, the head that won't stay dead, the green-hued skin that threaten Arthur and Gawain. And we'll think more about where that threat is specifically coming from. And again, we can think, take this and think about it and learn from it um, about resisting dualistic ways of seeing the world. So now it's Michaelmas, which is September 29th and time for Gawain to go, but he tarries until All Saints Day, which is November 1st. 
He declares the outcome of the game when discussing it with Arthur to be merely a trifle. Oh, who cares if I live or die? As long as I keep my word. But perhaps we can already sense a clash between these words that have this bravado about them and that he's lingering this whole month after he ought to have left, according to the poet. And then the poet goes on another one of those super detailed fashion descriptions that I had talked about in the last episode. Gawain is dressed in the absolute height of taste. He is the latest in weapon technology, we learn. The poet spends line after line describing his clothing and armor. And in the midst of all this admittedly boring, though very virtuosic and skilled description of Gawain's clothes, comes my favorite part of this fit. The description of Gawain's shield. Picture a shield in your mind, if you can. On the inside of the shield, so where his arm would go, there's a picture of the Virgin Mary, a painting of her. And Gawain is devoted to her. And and that's who he looks at on his side of the shield. On the outside of the shield, there's something that the poet calls the endless knot. It's a five-pointed star we call the pentangle today, or even a pentagram. Yes, this is the same star that your fifth grade teacher drew next to your successfully answered math problem. And if you were like me as a kid, you um, at around that same age practiced that star kind of crookedly and obsessively because you thought it was really cool. And no, despite all its associations with witchcraft today, Gawain's star really has nothing to do with sorcery. And we know this because of this insane description that we go into. The five points of Gawain's star stand for many sets of five that the poet lists for us. It's a token of fidelity, of faithfulness, because each line is irrevocably linked to the next. It's eternal. And if one side of the star is taken out, it collapses. It ceases to have its shape. The Gawain poet, like so many medieval folk stretching all the way back to the early church, including such famous writers like Augustine, loved the significance of numbers and felt that numbers held great power and secrets within them. So this five-pointed star stands for five five-fold things. So it's number symbolism upon number symbolism. And I'm going to list those for you. Number one, the first thing is Gawain's five senses in which he strives for perfection. This might seem a little strange at first, like, oh, this feels a little kindergarten level, sight, taste, smell. I don't know what else to say about that. But medieval people conceived of the senses as not only how you made sense of the world, how you gathered information, but also as the gateway for sin and illness in your body or conversely blessing and health. What you saw, smelled, tasted, and heard potentially affected you in ways little understood, and they really believed that. Number two, his five fingers. Again, you might go, huh, okay. (laughs) But when you think about fingers, 
like the senses, um, the, if the senses are gateways into your body, your fingers are symbolic of your actions, your outward affect. Um, and Gawain also is striving perf- for perfection in his very actions. Number three is Gawain's faith founded in the five wounds of Christ. The five wounds of Christ, his two pierced hands, his two pierced feet, and the wound in his side were popular images of devotion in medieval England. There were prayers that you could memorize that included them. There were even uh, drawings in manuscripts. And, and that's like its whole other history um, that I, if you're interested, you should look into it. It's fascinating. But people really um, enjoyed meditating on these images of Jesus' suffering because they helped um, the devotee to suffer with Jesus in the, while they were suffering and remember their redemption by the cross and recall their sins in confession as part of what had wounded Christ. Number four, it represents the five joys of Mary in her son Jesus, which was another really popular tool for meditation and prayer. So Mary's five joys included the Annunciation, when Gabriel told her she would bear Christ, when Christ was born on Christmas Day, when Jesus rose from the dead on Easter, when Jesus ascended into heaven, and lastly, when Mary herself ascended into heaven in the doctrine that is called the Assumption. So the five wounds and the five joys were sometimes linked together in medieval Christians' emphasis on both the suffering and the joy of the earthly life and as ways to help them pray and help them conceptualize uh, Jesus and the shape of his life and its events. And by pairing them, it's kind of this message of take courage. Life involves both the suffering, and the joy, and these fives remind us that. Finally, number five, the last and perhaps the most significant symbol of the pentangle are five virtues that Gawain takes as his particular virtues. Friendship, fraternity, purity, politeness, and pity are how um, Simon Armitage translates them. In the Middle English, they are um, franchise, which is loyalty, fellowship, fellowship, clanness, cleanness, the all-important courtesy, courtesy, and pity. Note that these are a little different from the translation. Um, these are knightly virtues. So loyalty to one's lord was super important. Um, for obvious reasons. Uh, If you're a knight, you are always sworn in service to a lord. Fellowship with other Christians, and especially those of the round table, was significant. Uh, And then cleanness extended beyond purity to include cleanness of body as well as cleanness of mind and cleanness of heart. And this poet is really interested in this uh, virtue. He writes a whole poem called Cleanness, which is also extremely fascinating and fairly disturbing. Um, Cleanness is uh, also a a class virtue, to put it kind of roughly. (laughs) It's a way of distinguishing oneself from the filthy peasantry of the time. If you had clean clothes and a relatively clean body, 
That was a marker of status. And then there's courtesy, which is not just, uh, as I mentioned before, opening the door for people, not what we think of courtesy today. It included manners, but also more broadly, the way one carried oneself. And then the last, pity. Another pretty class-conscious virtue of mercy towards women, the needy, and the oppressed. Gawain has a reputation, uh, a well-known reputation, of being the perfect knight. These are the virtues he must practice to keep that reputation intact. Without any one of these, his knightly perfection collapses, just like the pentangle if you take out a side of it. It's significant that these virtues are on Gawain's shield. They protect him as a knight. They protect his reputation and his honor. They're what he faces out to the hostile world as his chosen representation of himself. Remember, the emblem on a knight's shield identified him in battle to both his friends and his enemies. So the pentangle to Gawain encompasses his identity and protects him from his enemies. It's more than just a meaningful symbol. My good friend, Jessica, who um, also, uh, she's a professor, and she teaches Sir Gowan in the Green Knight to undergraduates on a regular basis. And when they get to this part of the story, she actually asks them to draw their own pentangle and label it with the pentangle virtues of their university or their own cultural background. It's a good, even enlightening question. What virtues does your culture tie tightly together, then suffer when they inevitably collapse? Americans um, don't really have one pentangle, but I think certainly the left and right and the middles and extremes of those, they all have their set of interlocked, prized virtues. So do the different varieties of Christianity that I see. Episcopalians proudly wear a different pentangle on their shields than Baptists do. It's kind of a fun thought experiment to think on what these virtues are and how something so valuable to one subset of people, integral to their identity to the point of collapse, if they fail, is worth so little to another set. What appears on your shield that you face outward to the world? What traits or virtues do you use to protect and portray your identity? After much bemoaning of Gawain's fate by the court, he finally leaves. (laughs) It's November. It's all saints. Chill and dead leaves everywhere. And on this journey, he encounters giants and serpents, wolves and wild men of the woods and And the funny thing is, is that the poet basically describes it as I just said. It's, he doesn't give us any of the details of these, these hard fought battles. It's um, a side note, but what he really focuses on is Gawain's worst enemy, which is the cold and loneliness. So here's a snippet of the beautiful Middle English on Gawain's war with winter. For where a wrath at him, not so much that winter nas wears, when the cold eclair water fro the cludis shade, and fresh air hit fall micht to the fell earth. Near slain with the slater, he slept in his earnest, 
Monichtes denne noch in nacke rockes. Veras clatterend fro the crest, the cold burn renes, and hanged he over his head in hard icicles. I bet you caught one word there. <laughs> Again, we have a wonderful effect with the alliteration. Can you hear the clattering? Even though you might not understand what I'm saying, can you hear the clattering of the cold water running down Gawain's helm as the clouds sleet on him, near slain in his cold irons, his armor? The icicles form on his helmet as he hunkers down in the freezing air. Naked rocas, or naked rocks, is a fantastic phrase, and it just sounds jagged and unforgiving. As Gawain and all of nature suffer under the onslaught of winter, Christmas Eve arrives. He prays to Jesus and Mary that they will provide somewhere he can hear Mass on the following Holy Day. And seemingly miraculously, as he wanders in this freezing wood, a castle appears, complete with battlements and barbican, towers and pinnacles and chimneys built in white stone. It's so perfect that Gawain thinks it looks as though it were cut out of paper and set against the snowy landscape. He's warmly welcomed into the castle, especially once everyone finds out who he is. Now we'll get to learn from the famous Gawain, whisper the courtiers, of the best manners and love talk. Love talk? By the way, that is a literal translation. Love talking. (laughs) Is this 1990s MTV? Is this perhaps the American Girl book series on boys and flirting that I perused in great secrecy and embarrassment? Being skilled at love talk was actually a very important aspect of chivalric manners. One of the most influential poems of the entire European Middle Ages, and I actually really don't like this poem, I actually hate it, was called The Romance of the Rose. This poem concerns the pursuit and courtship of a lady by a knight, all set into a torturous garden allegory with a practically pornographic ending on the consummation of this wooing. It was fashionable for knights to write poetry and pine after a lady of the court, married or not, to wear their colors in tournaments, and yes, to be known as a ladies' man, but not a brute. Gawain the Love Talk Tutor is in town. He has a reputation to uphold. Gawain meets Bertilac, the lord of the castle, and two mysterious women. They're a steady in contrast. One is old, squat, and Gawain mentally notes how the immaculate white folds of her headdress contrast with her hoary, hairy, ancient face. The other is, as the kids would say today, a whole snack. She's blooming. Pearls gleam on her breast and throat like snow on mountain slopes. She's Bertilac's wife, but she and Gawain almost immediately begin to flirt at the feast. Their pleasure in one another's company surpassed all princely sports by far, translates Armitage. Gawain happily stays with them for the Christmas feast, but regretfully announces his intentions to leave the following morning to continue seeking the Green Knight at his mysterious Green Chapel. 
But laughing, the Lord reassures him that he could sleep in on New Year's Day and still keep his frightening appointment with destiny that very day, for the Green Chapel is only two miles away. Stay, dear Gawain, and rest in mirth. And, Bertilac adds, play a Christmas game with me. Gawain, shouldn't you avoid Christmas games? Remember what happened last time? But Gawain can't refuse. He agrees to play. Bertilac announces he's going to hunt for the next few days. Anything he catches, he will give to Gawain. Remember, in a world with limited food options, and one where only a privileged few, the elite, are allowed to hunt at all, such prizes are valuable. But here's the catch. Anything Gawain gains at Bertilac's castle himself, he must give to Bertilac. What could go wrong? That marks the end of Fit 2. I hope you enjoyed our time with Gawain. I can't stop grinning from ear to ear when I read this and as I write and think about what to share with you. Listen next week to find out what happens in Fit 3 and think with me further about how Gawain will get entangled in his own pentangle, so to speak. If you come up with ideas on what a pentangle in your community would stand for, I would love to hear them. You can tell me on Twitter or on Instagram at Old Books with Grace. You can also find the text of this blog at oldbookswithgrace.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, I'd appreciate it if you subscribed, rated, and reviewed so that others can find it more easily. Thanks for listening. The prayer you heard at the beginning of this episode is from the Aquinas Prayer Book by St. Thomas Aquinas, translated and edited by Robert Anderson and Johann Moser, published by the Sophia Institute Press.